0: Well, good morning, CD of you, and welcome to our Sunday morning service. It's great to have you with us. I say that more by faith than by sight. We're working through the series Keeping Your Joy, the Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. This subject this morning really interests me, and it is so relevant to the body of Christ today. I want to talk to you about loving others with the affection of Christ Jesus. Loving others with the affection of Christ Jesus. The opening text is Philippians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And I want you to notice right away, the way Paul says, it is, it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, its where he is now, all by himself, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's important to defend the gospel. It's it's not negative. It's not divisive. Paul says he was set to defend the gospel any time. in the defense and confirmation of the gospel for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus and I mentioned that phrase it is it is right for me to feel this way this way about you all verse 7 now the way Paul feels about them it comes across in verses we've already studied he he thanks God for them. In verse 3, we studied that. He prays for them with joy in his heart. Verse 4, we studied that. He holds high confidence for their future in Christ. Verse 6, we studied that. Now, in today's text, starting at verse 7, he tells them that it's right for him to feel this way about them. And that's the phrase I want to look at, because it sets up the interpretation of our text. It's a strange wording. He says, it's it's right, proper, for me to feel this way about you. I mean, if Paul's feelings just kind of naturally uh, bubbled up, flowed from friendship, then we would call his affection for them natural. It's natural that I feel this way about you. But he doesn't choose that word. we probably wouldn't use the word right or proper. We wouldn't use like ethical duty type words to define feelings of natural warm affection. I mean, maybe we can start to see what Paul's getting at when we think of the opposite of feeling the way we ought to feel. Because we all know what it's like not to feel about people the way we know is right we we know what it's like to feel anger when we ought to be patient so what we're feeling it's not right we we know what it's like to feel hatred when we're supposed to feel love i mean we know even if we try to kid ourselves and bluff our own conscience we know when the way we feel towards someone isn't right. And so, naturally, it begs the question, so how, how, do, we keep, how do we keep things right, Feeling, feelings that are right toward people? How can we keep our hearts right, proper, in their affection and care for, for fellow Christians? I mean, I see Christian unity in this text. I see Paul telling us how to hold others rightly in our hearts. How to think about them in a way that fits with our devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus said the world would know we were his disciples by our love for each other. So when this isn't right in our hearts, then we make, the gospel appear unreal, to the watching world. And so here's what I see in this text. I see three roots to a right Christian heart of love. Three roots to a right proper unity. Here's what we're going to look at. I'll tell you right up front. So first, True unity comes from a shared sacrifice in a consuming task. I see that in the last part of verse 7. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So unity comes from a shared sacrifice in a consuming task. Secondly, true unity, right unity, It comes from understanding what it means to be recipients of grace. I get that in the first part of that seventh verse. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for, use the connectors, you are all partakers with me of grace. So secondly, true unity comes from understanding what it means to be a recipient of grace and third, True Christian unity, right unity, comes from a realistic view of what it means to expose our hearts' motives and affections to an all-knowing, all-powerful judge. And I get that in verse 8, for God is my witness, it's like a legal vow kind of thing, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. So let's work through these three points, okay, this morning. One, true Christian unity comes from a shared sacrifice in a consuming task. And I get that in that seventh verse. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Okay, why does he hold them in his heart? For. for, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, 7a. How does Paul feel about them? Well, he thanks God for them. Verse 3, he prays for them with joy. Verse 4, he holds them in his heart. Verse 7, he yearns for them with the affection of Christ. That's how Paul feels about these people. There's nothing cold or detached or informal. This is a, a loving relationship. Now, here's the question. Why does he feel this way about them? What makes him feel this way about them? He didn't even want to go to Philippi in the first place. What caused this kind of unity? And that's what he tells us in verse 7. He says, I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I think this is profound and easily missed. So the love Paul has for these people, it didn't come from donuts and car rallies, and movie nights, and home fellowship groups. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but that's not what did it. He says, they were partakers with him of God's grace, but not just in forgiveness. They were partakers of God's grace, not just in salvation, but particularly in the way they shared with Paul in defending and confirming the gospel. So, so in other words... Because they were following Jesus in that same Roman environment that Paul was in. They were experiencing the same persecution. They were experiencing paying the same price, facing the same challenges Paul was facing. So they were, they were persevering through the same difficulties for the same reason They loved the gospel just like Paul did, and they were, with Paul, they were all paying the price for that devotion to Jesus, and they were paying that price together. I mean, these verses speak to a a particular problem in the church, I think. Loneliness. This is a felt need in our busy and personal world. People leave churches because they didn't feel the church was loving. Churches try everything imaginable to link people together so they won't feel lonely. And that's all good, but maybe we need to probe a little deeper than we are. I mean, what if the cure for loneliness, what if it isn't what we think it is? I mean, all of our social activities, they don't always solve the problem. And I think this is what Paul is getting at in our text. We need to think about what Paul is saying. You can't create Christian unity just by putting Christians together in the same room. It doesn't work that way. If you put people together with totally different interests and goals, they'll just bore each other. If you put people together with the same goals, but they're carnal goals, then people will just compete with each other. We will only build shallow relationships if we build them around small activities and goals. And I want you to look again at the kind of unity Paul described in verse 7. I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That's it. People will think about it. People will pray for each other, care for each other, and long for each other when they're all sacrificing the same things for the same gospel when they are plunged together deeply into this shared divine assignment, they become especially united when they sacrifice and suffer for the same gospel. We, we know this is what Paul had in mind. It's not a guess. We know this is what Paul had in mind by the way he describes his situation and theirs, in a little bit more detail. You can see it in Philippians 1, 29 and 30. Look what he he writes, these theological words. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, there's the verb, but also suffer for his sake. Now note these words. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So underscore, underscore that word engaged. He's not talking about, he's not talking to these Christians about the things they attend. He's talking about the things in which they're engaged. Totally different. And he says they're engaged in the same conflict that engaged Paul. Now, they could have avoided the conflict easily. They could have avoided the conflict by being less engaged. But they chose to engage themselves with Paul. And because they were all engaged together in defending and confirming and spreading the gospel, they didn't have time to let their hearts get divided over petty things. It's a great text. So in other words, the things that normally divide people were lost sight of because none of them was living for himself or herself anyway. You can't create unity without shared engagement in the Great Commission. You can create surface friendship, true enough, but you can't build Christian unity that way. The more any church devotes itself merely to people's likes and tastes, the more people will divide and squabble over whose tastes are going to rule the pack. The more people forget about their likes and dislikes and styles and tastes and concentrate on sacrificing themselves for the same gospel, the more they will come to love Jesus and love each other at the same time. So engagement in a great task. That's the first way unity grows. That's how you feel right about people. Point number two. These are great words. Not my point, but the text that follows. Unity grows where people come to understand the nature of living corporately as co-partakers of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's back to these same words in in verse 7. Then verse 8, he says, It is right for me, right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Then in verse eight, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with, with the affection of Christ Jesus. I listed this point second even though it comes first in the text. Because here, here, here's the point I wanted to make. When you partner with people in the gospel, you're engaged in the spreading of the gospel. Here, here's what will happen inevitably. When you're engaged with people, you're going to realize that they aren't perfect. When you're engaged with people, in defending and suffering and sacrificing and spreading the gospel, when you're really engaged, you're going to realize that they're a lot like you and that people will let you down. You will see places where they, they don't resemble Jesus very much. Well, they're trying all right, just like you're trying, but they can be such flops at times. Happens every time. Every time this church fills up, and it will again. What keeps Christian love alive at times like that? Where does Christian unity come from when you're with people who are occasionally not very Christ-like? When Paul says he yearns for these people, with the affection, in verse 8, the affection of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We're pretty certain Paul doesn't even know all the individuals in that church at Philippi. How can he say he yearns for them all with the affection of Christ Jesus? I send emails, sometimes letters, mostly emails, And I've learned, like most Christians, you find religious ways of signing off, and I put in Christ. That's the tag I've used for years, hopefully with not forgetting its meaning. Paul says he longed for these people with the affection of Christ Jesus. I think there are two ideas here. So A, loving people with the affection of Christ Jesus isn't just a nice way of saying He really loves them a whole bunch. It's not a valentine. It's not... When he says, I love you, long for these people with the affection of Christ Jesus, it's not the amount of love he's talking about. It's the kind of love he's talking about. He loves them... He loves them the way he has been loved by Christ. That's really important. So so in other words... He didn't choose these people because they were lovable. Paul chose to love these people just as Jesus chose to love Paul. When you love people with the affection of Christ, all the, all the distinctions and divisions are obliterated. You love them because Jesus loves them and it breaks Jesus' heart if you don't love them too. If if you love people with the affection of Christ Jesus, it means they don't have to deserve your love any more than you deserved Jesus' love. It's huge. And that leads to the second reminder of what Paul meant in verse 8 when he said he longed for these people with the affection of Christ Jesus. The second thing is, Paul loved these people as fellow partakers of grace. You see it? He says, verse 7, It's right for me to feel, this is what we're looking at. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Paul knew he was a receiver of free grace and he knew they were receivers of free grace. He knew he had been loved with the affection of Christ Jesus and he loved them, he said, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And, and the affection of Christ Jesus, whether to him or to them, always comes as a gracious affection. It's it's always affection for unloving, unlovable, guilty, annoying. Any gracious affection has to come on those terms. I would submit to you, knowing my own heart, we have a tough time seeing people as partakers with us of grace. I mean, We know we've been saved by grace, and we're just so thankful for it. But linking that with the way we're supposed to think of them as receivers of grace, that's the tricky part. And I want to read you a parable, a story Jesus told, because he knew we had a hard time with this. We liked grace when it came to us better than grace when it came to people we might find annoying. You know this story. Let me read it quickly. It's in Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is how the kingdom works, Jesus says. It may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's roughly five billion Canadian dollars today. 10,000 talents is more than the wealth of Solomon at the peak of his kingdom, okay? This is the kind of money we're talking about. And since he could not pay, I guess not, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him that debt, that enormous debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That, Canadian dollars, is about 50 bucks. So this guy, who's just been forgiven five billion grabs this person who owes him 50 and seizing him 28 he began to choke him are we supposed to see a, a just a meanness in this guy saying pay what you owe and so his servant fell down and pleaded with him have patience with me i will pay you he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were watching, they were greatly distressed, and they reported this to their master, the one who had just forgiven the $5 billion debt. They went and told him, 32. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Paul says, we're partakers together of the grace of Christ. Okay. 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then now the parable ends. This isn't parable. This is Jesus speaking now. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So God can forgive sin. The fact that the first debtor was forgiven a debt that would have taken At an average annual income, about 200,000 years to pay back. One talent was the equivalent of roughly 20 years' wages. 10,000 times 20 equals 200,000 years. The fact that, the fact that we have this picture of God who can just say, it's forgiven. That means God can forgive, hear it, everyone. In Cedarview and watching, God can forgive enormous sins instantly. Apparently, what he has a hard time dealing with is the blindness that forgets or refuses to see others in the body of Christ as, in Paul's words, partakers with me of grace. Jesus says, that's the part we forget. Point number three, we're almost done. Unity grows in the body of Christ as I remember my accountability before God. It's just in that little phrase in verse eight where he says, for God is my witness. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's strange. It's strange that Paul puts his words in the language of like a formal oath. I mean, he's not in court, he's not under any judicial trial, or is he? Maybe he is. Maybe he's reminding himself that every motive of his heart falls under the examination for God. God is my witness. He's saying God witnesses all of this. Apparently, I need to tell myself that. True, Paul has a redeemer. What a, what a blessed comfort that is. But he, he never seems to forget that God witnesses. That, that it doesn't, it's not talking about works and earning salvation. This is Paul's way of saying, what I'm talking about here, loving others with the affection of Christ, it really counts. That's what he's saying. I'm not, this isn't just platitudes. This really matters. It matters to God. Paul, he just trains himself, and I need to. He trains himself never to allow the freeness of grace, never to allow the freeness of grace to keep him from minding the will of God. It can't be bad to think this way because other great New Testament apostles and pastors, they seem to remind their flocks of this same truth. James does it. Look what James says. Same, same kind of teaching. Do not grumble against one another. It's not just grumbling. It's grumbling against. This is the opposite of, of uh, seeing people as partakers of the grace of God. This is grumbling against one another. He says, Don't do it. But it's not just because it's not good for you, it's not healthy, it's not nice. It's so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Are we supposed to talk like that anymore? What is the judge doing at the door? (laughs) Apparently, here's one of the things the judge does at the door he looks for how much affection I have for fellow partakers of grace with me. That's what he's doing. The judge looks to see how well Don Horbin remembers the $5 billion debt he has been forgiven when someone else owes him 50. That's what the judge is doing at the door. Remember, church, God isn't finished with your debtor yet. There may be those who hurt you, annoy you, wrong you. But they owe you far less than the debt you've already been forgiven in Christ. This is the beauty of the gospel. It works in Christian marriage. It works in Christian churches. It works in Christian relationships. Here's the principle. You will never be asked to forgive anything that's as great as you have already been forgiven in Christ. That's... That's the governing principle. Learn to love your fellow debtor. So, where does Christian love come from? We need to know. It doesn't just rain down from heaven because you sing the right song. First, unity comes from a deep, shared sacrificial commitment to spreading the gospel and building the kingdom. Second, unity comes from appreciating we're all part of a body created and sustained by divine grace. And third, unity comes from anticipating divine accountability and reward for the motives and actions of our heart. The judge is standing at the door. And so we all need Cedarview. We all just need to discover how freeing and how joyful to worship every Sunday. If we can't do it corporately online, corporately again, one day, but to worship every Sunday with partakers, fellow partakers of restoring, redeeming grace. Tonight we'll be, uh, We'll be going through When Life Swallows You Whole with the prophet Jonah. We'll be studying that together. Mark and Kim Steinfeld, we got a nice video from them with some prayer requests from Madrid, Spain. We'll be showing that tonight. Let's pray together. It is uh, a vivid tribute to our fallenness that we still find it hard to manifest the kind of grace to others that you have so lavishly bestowed upon us. We ask for your forgiveness. Let, Let the love abound that goes beyond just earthly interests. Let the love abound in Cedarview that is tied to the common sacrifice of confirming and spreading the gospel. A love that is... That is lavished on others because we appreciate how much it has been lavished on us with our own sin and guilt. And a love that is fueled by remembering that God minds how we love and show grace to others. The judge is at the door. Bless your word to our hearts. Help us to receive it with with, uh, spirit-empowered attentiveness, not just condemnation. So that this fruit grows more deeply entrenched in all of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church. See you tonight. Love one another.